We are in a series of messages called Saturate, and this journey for us has been a journey uh, through the book of Acts that will continue for quite some time. And one of the, the themes that we've picked up on in the book of Acts is this, is that it's the, it's the story of the birth of the church and the advancement of the gospel throughout the world. And we've said that the gospel uh, goes both wide, as we see in Acts 1-8, to Jerusalem, to Judea, and all of Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, but it also goes deep into the very hidden crevices of our souls. The question we're answering today is this, how does the gospel go deep and wide? How does it go deep and how does it go wide? And the big idea of where we're headed today is this, is that the gospel goes forth through proclamation and demonstration. Through proclamation and demonstration. So this week, we're going to specifically look at what the gospel going forth through proclamation looks like. And next week, we're going to look at the demonstration side of things. I was, uh, I was meeting with, uh, with a young man uh, over a Christmas party uh, probably about six years ago. And, and I recall uh, a conversation that I had with him. He was, he was in one of these seasons of life where he was really thinking about everything that he learned. Uh, and he was, he was attending a church on his own, away from his parents now, and, and just really starting to own his faith uh, by himself. And he, he made a comment to me that's kind of had me thinking ever since. He said, you know, the church that I'm at now uh, has gotten to this place where, where we said, hey, yeah, it's good, it's good to be in the gospel, but we've got to move on from the gospel. We have to get past the gospel. And if you and I are honest, we've probably considered that same thought before. That there's a time in life where we need to get past the gospel. The problem is, is that we never see it in the Bible. I don't care how mature you are in this room. If you've been following God your entire life, you know, for 30, 40, 50, 60 years, or you're thinking about following Him today, the end-all, be-all for the Christian is the gospel. Because the, what the gospel does is it continues to advance the kingdom of God both in the world and in our hearts. It's the, it's, the, it's the vision of New City Church. When we set out to plant this church, we said, here's our vision statement. It's to live as the family of God together here in Lawrenceville and demonstrate and proclaim the gospel to one another in our city. So it's about the gospel in the community uh, uh, of Lawrenceville. It's about the gospel in the community of our church. It's about the gospel taking root in our heart and changing us from the inside out. So here's where we're going to go this morning. I want to take, take a moment... Uh, to talk about the role of preaching in the life of the church, which is a little bit of an interesting sermon, right? <laughs> Wait, so you're going to preach a sermon about preaching? Uh, yeah, something like that. So uh, we're going to look a little bit about that. Uh, and here's the reason why. In the book of Acts, do you know how many sermons there are? There are 19 sermons in the book of Acts. 19 sermons. Eight by Peter, nine by Paul, one by Stephen, and one by James. 19 sermons in the book of Acts. Now, they're not in full length, but they're bits and pieces of sermons. And it's because that's, how, that's one of the ways that the gospel is proclaimed. It's heralded. It's embodied. It's, it's preached to people that will hear it. Another way that the gospel is proclaimed, and everyone's responsible for this, is to speak the truth in love to other people. So we proclaim the gospel in everyday, ordinary language. So part number one is we're looking at the role of proclamation in the church, and part number two is we're looking specifically at Peter's proclamation, the first sermon that was ever preached in the church. And we're going to just, uh, we're going to distill it to a few principles that we see really in about every sermon in the book of Acts. So we're just going to, we're going to set up today what proclamation looks like, why it's so important, and what to do with it as we go on throughout the book of Acts. So part one, the role of proclamation in the church. There, there's a quote by St. Francis of Assisi. 
And it's a very, it's a very uh, popular quote. Some people think that he never said it. Some people do. Uh, but I'm, I'm going to credit to him because most people do. And it, it, it's this quote right here. Maybe you've heard it before. Preach the gospel always. Use words if necessary. So preach the gospel always. Use words if necessary. Now, it's kind of a cute saying, right? It's like the, the, the point of it is, is, is what St. Francis was probably trying to get to, is that it's really important for gospel deeds to follow gospel words. But it draws a, a useless dichotomy between word and deed, between proclamation and demonstration of the gospel. Both always go hand in hand together. So that's the, the lie to believe is that actually speaking the words of the good news is not necessary for the Christian. We can just live it out. We can't do that, church. And here's why. Turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 10. Uh, verses 14 uh, through 17. And I want to I look very briefly at what Paul says about hearing and preaching and how people come to faith. Because what we're going to read in Romans 10, uh, for every believer that's in the room today, it has been your story and how you have come to faith in Jesus. Because this is how faith comes about. So Romans 10, verses 14 through 17. says this, How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him who they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the Word of Christ. So the reasoning, the, the logic that Romans 10 kind of lays out for us is this, is that we need faith to be Christians. We need faith to have hope in eternity. We need faith to have hope here in life now as Christ dwells inside of us. And how do we get faith? Well, faith comes from hearing. You have to hear the Word of God preached. You have to hear the truth about the Gospel, the facts of the Gospel, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus who has lived a perfect life in place of our, our lives that are not perfect. He's lived that life for us. And then Christians, so then hearing comes from proclamation and Christians must proclaim. So how do we get faith? Well, we hear the Word of God preached and then God awakens the implanted Word as James says in James chapter 1. He awakens that implanted Word inside of us and He gives us faith to believe it's true and then we proclaim when we hear the Gospel that it's true. That's how we're saved. That's why proclamation is the essence. It can't be anything less than that to be Christian, to proclaim the gospel and to hear the word proclaim it. So in the book of Acts, that's why there's 19 sermons. That's why they're always talking about Jesus because he's the only hope. They could go around in Acts 2, 42 through 47, like we're going to look at next week. They could go around having all of these great deeds and living in community together. And we know that that's a benefit of the fruit of the Spirit being, being in their lives and, and the Spirit indwelling them. But they had to proclaim the good news or the gospel doesn't go forth. The gospel has to be proclaimed. So what should we expect? I'm going to give you guys kind of a litmus test to judge preaching. Uh, because it's important to have biblical preaching. Because if someone isn't preaching the Bible to you, then you're not hearing the Word of God. So what should we expect in biblical proclamation? John Piper says it like this, that you should expect expositional exaltation. As John, only John Piper could say, right? Expositional 
exaltation. So first, expositional. From the Bible always. Uh, Not just a show and tell of what someone has found in the Bible, but really a heralding of the Gospel. Did you know that the devil can show you Scripture? Think about Matthew chapter 4. Jesus is being tempted. He is being tempted in the wilderness. And the three times the devil tempts him, Jesus comes back proclaiming the Word of God to the enemy, doesn't he? The second time that he does that, the enemy comes to him with God's Word. The enemy can use the Word of God against us, but what he cannot do, that the devil can show us the Word of God. This is crazy, right? But he cannot exult. He cannot rejoice in the Word of God. That's what we do as the church. We rejoice in God's Word because it is true, it is life, and it is breath to our lungs. That's what God's Word is. That's why it must be proclaimed. And if someone ever in New City Church starts preaching another gospel, something that is not the Word of God, you have full permission to walk up in the middle of the service and walk out of those doors. And whoever's preaching should do the same thing. Because without the Word of God, we've got nothing, church. We, we, we have nothing. So the second thing is this, this exaltation. And exaltation is different than exaltation. Here's what exaltation means. It means to rejoice. To rejoice in the hearing of God's Word being preached. Rejoice in it being proclaimed. And to expect to hear the Gospel preached to your heart when you come to New City Church. But that requires a little bit of effort on your behalf, doesn't it? It requires a little effort because we have to come into this place expecting to hear from God. We don't just show up expecting to get a couple nuggets out of the Word. We, expecting to have an, we expect to have an encounter with God whenever we worship together. Do we expect that? Because that's what God has for us. John Calvin uh, said it like this. He was speaking about preaching in his sermons on, on Ephesians. He says it like this. It is certain that if we come to church, we shall not only hear a mortal person speaking, but we shall feel even by God's secret power, that God is speaking to our souls. I'm going to stop right there. Have you ever heard a sermon before and just thought, man, I feel like God was speaking to me? You ever had one of those? Every week, okay. That's good. It means the Holy Spirit's working. He's doing His thing. That's why. It's because the Holy Spirit is, is absolutely making the truth come alive in our hearts. And he goes on to say this, that God is the teacher. So God so touches us that the human voice enters into us and so profits us that we are refreshed and nourished by it. God calls us to God's self as God's own mouth and we're open and we, we, saw there, we saw God there in person. So how do we respond to the proclamation of the gospel? Because this isn't about me, this isn't about you, this is about God. When we come and we sit, there's, there's a way that God has wired us that we come and we hear His Word proclaimed. It's like His Word washes over us. And, it, and it, it's, it's like, it's like the, the wind of the Spirit blows through the caverns of our souls. And His, his, his Word, it's like, it's like what we looked at in Ezekiel 36 uh, last week whenever, whenever these dry bones came to life. That's what it's like to hear the Word of God proclaimed. In New City, I hope that we're a church that never settles for anything less. I pray that that would be our story, that we just love the Word of God because it's the only thing that we have. So that's what you can expect in a sermon. And that's some things that you can do to prepare yourself 
The second part of this is where we actually get into Acts chapter 2. So I'm going to ask you to stand, and we're going to read Acts chapter 2, verses 14 through 41. So we're actually going to read a sermon together, together from the Bible. Acts 2, 14 through 41. Here's the word of the Lord. This is Peter. This is the first sermon ever preached in the church. But Peter, verse 14, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea, and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day, or nine o'clock in the morning. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my Spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and, and signs on earth below, blood and fire, vapor and smoke, and the sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my, my right hand that I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life and you make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up and of what we are all witnesses being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this to you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom He had crucified. So that's the sermon. And then Luke follows it up with this statement. Let all the house of Israel therefore know, I'm sorry, verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, and this is key, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. And with many other words, He bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received His word were baptized. 
And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, this is your word. God, let us not skip over this. Let's not just think that this was a sermon for first century Jews. This is a sermon for our hearts today. Would you cut us to the heart like you cut these first hearers to the heart? Would you cut us in two and expose us and show us our utter and absolute desperate need for Jesus Christ? Would you gospel our hearts this morning as we hear your word preached and it washes over our souls? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. So as I said, we're going to look at five extractions of Peter's sermon. Five things that we can extract out of the sermon that was preached here. And I'll I'll remind you this, that in Acts chapter 2.13, this whole sermon is explaining, we see see that it's explaining Pentecost. So at Pentecost, the Spirit is poured out. People are speaking in different languages. Some people respond and they believe and they have faith. But there's another group of people that respond and say, hey, these guys are just drunk. They're just drinking new wine. Let's just let this go away. Let's just ignore the fact that something remarkable happened. Let's just act like it never happened. Let's just brush it off. And so Peter meets him right there. Oh, you want to brush this off? You want to ignore the non-ignorable Jesus that has just risen from the dead and sent His Spirit to dwell among you? You want to ignore that. And so this is where we pick up. The first thing that biblical preaching looks like is this, is that it's relevant. As much as I hate that word, I can't think of a better word. And here's why I do not like the word relevant, but I think we need to redeem it. Many times we look at God's Word and we think that God's Word needs to be tailored to suit our lives. So, so we, we kind of we just hear the things that we want to hear about God's Word. But the problem is, is that because we're sinful people, you and I don't know what we need to hear. In fact, I would make this declaration that the Bible shows us what true relevance actually is. The Bible, not the world, shows us what we should be concerned about. The Bible, not the world, shows us what we need to repent of. The Bible, not the world, shows us how we need to be encouraged with God's Word. The Bible shows us what true relevance is. So in Acts chapter 2, 13 and 15, we see this whole scenario that I was just telling you about. And Peter stands up with the eleven, and he lifts his voice up and he addresses them. And he says, look, it's only nine o'clock in the morning. These jokers aren't drunk. And, and, and here's, another, here's another fact. This is actually, what's happening right now is actually something that you are looking forward to happening. You're Jewish. You believe in the law. You believe in the prophets. Well, one of the prophets you believe in is the prophet Joel. And in, we, in our Bible today, it's Joel 2, 28 through 32. We see that Joel prophesies that the Spirit is going to come forth and it's going to be poured out like a, like, a, like a monsoon downpour on humanity at Pentecost. It's going to be poured out and some, some supernatural things are going to happen when the Spirit of God comes to rest upon the souls of men. Some supernatural things are going to happen. So he calls them to actually believe in what they say they believe in. You guys believe this. How, have, how then have you missed it? This has been prophesied for hundreds of years. How then have you missed the very thing that you've been looking for? How have you missed the forest 
for the trees, guys. How have you missed this? And so he begins to preach and tell them the word. He meets them where they're at because he meets them right in the middle of unbelief. So whenever, whenever we're, we're, we're reading the word of God, the point of application is always the place that the fall hits our lives. So it's always where unbelief enters into our life. So when we're reading through the Bible, we read through something in the Scriptures, and we, 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 see, we see something that's just maybe a struggle with us, maybe a, a, a place that we don't really have faith in, that's the place where the Scriptures need to apply to our lives. And that's exactly what Peter does here, is that this whole new wine discussion. He says, hey, look, that's where we've got to put our finger right here, God. Your spirit has to do that. So I'm going to remind them of what your word says, and I'm going to trust your spirit to move in power there. He doesn't come and open up his sermon like this. Hey, guys, today I want to show you four business principles that are going to make you the best Jewish businessman in the world. He doesn't open his sermon right there, but he goes straight for the jugular as soon as he opens his mouth. Now, I'm not saying those sermons aren't necessary. That's just not what we see in the Bible. So... When we, when we hear the word preached, the Scriptures tell us what's important. And sometimes we're tempted to throw out words like, just throw them out of our vocabulary, words like atonement, words like imputation and, 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 uh, and redemption, and, and words like that. And we, we, we say, ah, those words don't really apply to me anymore. Well, we need to recapture the essence of those words because guess what? There's not English language that can describe what those words communicate theologically. We've got to orient our lives around God's Word instead of trying to orient God's Word around our lives. Does that make sense? We've got to recapture the essence and the beauty of God's Word. And in it, we will see that we will discover not only a couple tidbits of things that could apply to our lives, but we'll discover God Himself. And we'll know how to relate to God through His Word. It's a temptation when you're sitting in a pew to always jump to immediate application. Is it not? You want want the pastor to... To, to, to get a little t- takeaway bag and, and put some things in it for you to carry home and immediately apply to your life. Well, God's Word is not always that cut and dry. Church, we've got to be comfortable with the mystery. There's, there, you're going to hear some things preached that are in God's Word that you don't fully grab, and that's okay. Because you know what it's going to do? It's going to send you on this journey of exploring God's Word in community and seeking to find those truths out for yourself and seeking to see the beauty of Jesus in all the Scriptures. And that's a good thing. Now, if we never talk about application and immediate application especially, that's a problem too. But sometimes it's, it's good to be in the mystery. Sometimes it's good to know those things. I want to read Hebrews chapter 5, verses 12 through 14. Uh, for you. Because here's the danger. The danger is that we think that it's up to us to determine what's relevant in life. And Hebrews 5 speaks specifically to this. Hebrews 5, 12-14 says this, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he's a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. 
I have a, a daughter that's, uh, I guess, about 10 and a half months old now. So she's getting ready to be a year old. That's crazy. But she still drinks milk. I, I'm, pr- I'm pretty confident that if we let Maggie Grace, she would drink milk for the rest of her life, and that's all she would drink. I'm, I'm pretty sure she would do that. I'm, she likes it so much, I'm pretty sure she would continue in perpetual infancy if we would let her. As followers of Jesus, we cannot continue in perpetual infancy. We have to grow up into Christ in every way, as the book of Colossians said. And, 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 and proc- the proclamation of the gospel, church, should help us grow up into being able to, to, to uh, digest the meat of God's Word, the mystery of God's Word, the things that we can't wrap our minds around. We shouldn't be afraid to go there because the Holy Spirit wants to take us there as His people. He wants to take us into the mystery, into the things that we can't understand as well. Colossians 1.28 says this, Him we proclaim. There's that word for preaching. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That's the goal of the church right there. To present one another mature in Christ. And New City Church, we've been, we've been on this journey for a while and the honeymoon phase has actually worn off. And while the honeymoon stage was fun, I, I love where our church is right now because we're taking the truth of the gospel to one another's hearts. And it's not always easy. It's not always cut and dry. And there's a lot of tears. But God is, is working in our midst in such a way where we're able to present one another mature in Christ. And if we don't commit to one another in relationship, we never get to take the gospel to each other's hearts. But because we're committed to one another, we get to present one another mature in Christ. Not in this perpetual infancy stage, but we get to grow up in Jesus together. So that's the first thing. Is that preaching and proclamation must be relevant. It's got to speak to the issue at hand. The second thing is this. Is it's got to be full of the Bible. Did you know in this passage of Scripture right here, in the sermon, that there is... There's like 13 verses of Bible, and then there's like 13 verses of explaining the Bible. So half of the sermon is Peter quoting the Bible. The other half of the sermon is Peter explaining what he's quoted in the Bible. So it's not just like this one verse. It's, it's full of the Bible. Do you know why a sermon or a proclamation that we speak to one another has to be full of the Bible? Because the Bible is God's Word. If we want to see who God is and know who God is, we just speak His Word. I was, in, I was in high school, and, and I, I remember I was trying to make a decision for college. And some of you are in this stage now. And I, I just remember saying, man, I just wish God would speak to me. Like, I wish He would speak to me out loud. And one of my friends said, hey, you want God to speak to you out loud? Why don't you read the Bible out loud? And there He's speaking to you out loud. And all of a sudden, it kind of sunk into me. This is God's Word. This is, this is not just a book. This thing is God's Word. Our, our, our speech, our proclamation, our preaching, the way that we talk to one another ought to be full of the Bible. Do you know how our speech gets to be full of the Bible? We immerse ourselves in God's Word. And there has to be a community of people to help us do that, right? We have to immerse ourselves in God's Word. So, you know, let's just go through briefly what, what Peter's going after uh, in these different texts. So the Joel text, which is in Acts 2, 16 through 21, he's talking about pouring out the Spirit of God. And he's, he's really just trying to show them that, guys, you've been looking for this, but you're missing 
the forest for the trees. And, and, and the way that Joel explains the pouring out of the Spirit reminds me of a, uh, a trip that I took uh, high schoolers on uh, when I was a youth pastor in Indianapolis. We, uh, we, we decided we wanted to take a whitewater rafting trip with our upperclassmen to Colorado. Now at the time, I was like, Colorado's kind of in the Midwest, right? Wrong. It's a 24-hour drive each way. 24 hours in a charter bus that has 52 seats with 52 people in it. And so we're on our way, trucking along. It's great. It's good. All of our stuff is packed underneath. We've got like one change of clothes. We're going camping, so we're packing pretty light anyway. And then we stop at this gas station to get a couple drinks as we're settling in for the night. And do you know what happens at that time? The biggest rainstorm I have ever seen in my life, maybe it's the biggest rainstorm in the history of the world. I'm not sure. It, this, this would be on par with what happened in, uh, you know, with Noah and the ark, because this rainstorm was just massive. And so here we are, we're all out, and of course we didn't want to wait for the rain to stop. We said, hey, let's run through it, because that's a great idea. And so we run to the bus, and we are all soaking wet. None of us can change clothes, and we've got, I don't know, 20 hours to go to get to Colorado. Needless to say, it smelled great. And to make matters worse, the AC went out. So that was a fantastic trip. But when I think about the Spirit being poured out, I think about times in my life where I've experienced things like that, just uncontrollable amounts of water coming down out of the sky. That is the magnitude of the Holy Spirit coming upon our lives. That God's presence is so thick and rich in our lives. That's what it means for the Spirit to come upon these original hearers and for our lives as well. Then he goes on in Acts chapter 2. 25 through 28, and he's quoting Psalm 16, and he, he says, look, hey, I just want you to show that David, you guys all love David, the greatest king to ever rule Israel, except for Jesus. David, he prophesied about this resurrection. I can't, he saw this thing coming, and he prophesied it. And not only that, but in, in Psalm 110, he, you know, that he's quoting there, he says, He also prophesies about his ascension, the fact that he's going to go up and to be seated at the right hand of the Father. Now, this is the same guy, I want to to remind you, this is the same guy who denied Jesus three times. The same guy that tried to walk on water and failed at that. I mean, Peter is an absolute failure. But yet, for some reason, Peter stands up and he rebukes the false claim that his his Jewish brothers make. He stands up. We see a different Peter than we've ever seen before. He stands up in complete confidence and boldness. And do you know what I I credit that to? He's standing on God's Word, not on Peter's Word. When we stand on the truths of God's Word, we have a confidence and assurance that we can get in no other place. It has to be full of the Bible. The next thing is this. It has to be full of Christ. This has been helpful for me because the Bible is either pointing to Christ, pointing back to Christ, or telling the story of Christ. That's what the whole Bible is doing. The whole thing is about Jesus. C.H. Spurgeon put it like this once. The motto of all true servants of God must be, we preach Christ and Him crucified. A sermon without Christ in it is like a loaf of bread without any flour in it. No Christ in your sermon, sir? And then go home and never preach again until you have something worth saying. Typical C.H. Spurgeon right there. Just real trite and to the point. 
But that's the, that's the whole essence of our proclamation. So as the Scriptures talk about our speech being seasoned with grace in Ephesians, when we're proclaiming truth to one another, speaking the truth to one another in love, we have to be speaking the words of Christ. We have to be magnifying Christ. And our life has to be immersed in Him in such a way to be able to do that. Because honestly, if we're not, if we're not speaking the truth about Christ, and I'm not saying... I'm not saying you know, that our speech should be Jesus, 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 Bible, Bible, Bible all the time. But I'm saying that all of our speech should be influenced by Jesus, 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 and the Bible, 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 right? Because that's the only hope that any of us have. That's the only thing worth talking about. That's the only thing that gives life. You know, I, I think about uh, two passages that shaped me in college, which were Jeremiah 20, verse 9, and Acts chapter 4, verses 19 and 20. Uh, Jeremiah 29 uh, says this. I'm going to read it quickly for you. It won't be on the screen. Uh, Jeremiah 29 says this. If I say I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary with holding it in, and I cannot. So they're trying to stop Jeremiah from talking about God. And he said, look, they try, they try to shut it down. It's burning in my bones. I can't hold it in. Acts chapter 4, the Sanhedrin does the same thing to Peter and John. He says, hey, you know, we're going to let you guys live, but guess what? You, I don't want you talking about Jesus anymore. And you know what Peter and John said? They said, hey, you've got to judge what's right in the sight of man for you. But here's one thing that's true for us. We can't help but speak about Jesus. What would it look like, church, if we were the kind of people that couldn't help but talk about Jesus. We couldn't help it. It just came out. It just, it just oozed out of us because we were so immersed by the life that we found in Jesus Christ. Our proclamation ought to be full of Christ. And here's the truth. We're all proclaiming something with our lives. The question is, what are we proclaiming? What is it that we're proclaiming with our life? Is it, is it, is it fame, fortune? Is it a certain lifestyle? Is it certain friendships? I mean, what, what is it that we've aimed our life at? Because if it's anything other than Jesus, I can tell you it's going to sorely disappoint you. If it's your wife, she's going to disappoint you. If it's your husband, he's going to disappoint you. If it's your kids, they're going to disappoint you. He's the only thing worthy. Let's move on to the fourth thing. This is where it gets real good. It addresses the heart. So it goes like this. Peter has to tell them the bad news before the good news can be good news. He has to tell them the bad news. Did you notice what he said to them? I, it was a pretty winsome sermon, if I'm honest, right? Peter comes up and he's like, hey guys, how we doing today? You killed Jesus. Did you hear that in there? He's like, hey, the Christ who you crucified, I mean, he, he really lays it on them. He doesn't ease into it and say, hey guys, you know, how are things going? I know this Jesus thing has kind of shook things up. No, he says, you crucified Jesus. He goes straight for the jugular right here. You crucified Christ. But in the, in the same context of that, I'll read Acts 2, 23 and 30, through 24 for you. It's really helpful. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Let's stop right there. So, did they crucify Jesus? Physically, yes. But Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. 
Who really killed Jesus? God killed Jesus. He says, you crucified him and killed him by the hands of lawless men, but God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death. If you don't believe me that God killed Jesus, because it sounds like such a horrible statement, Romans 8.32 says this, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Now this is where this sermon gets real right here. Because here's the deal. The thing that's going through these guys' minds, these men and women's minds, is they're hearing Peter preach the word. It's first they're put on the hook. It's bad news first. You guys killed Jesus, but coupled up with this bad news is the fact that this God that they desperately want to have relationship with is actually the one who's responsible for killing his own son. So in Genesis chapter one, or ch- I'm sorry, chapter twenty-one, there's this story about Abraham. And do you remember the story about Abraham? Abraham and Sarah, they wait for years and years and years. God makes this promise to them that they're going to have descendants that are as numerous as the seashore. Well, the time comes where they finally get this son. And they name him Isaac. And it means laughter because Sarah laughed whenever God told her she was going to have a son. So I'm sure, I've got to imagine that they treasure this son. They're 90 years old. God's come through on his promise. Until one day, God tells Abraham to do what? To sacrifice his son. So they go up on the mountain. And, you know, Isaac says something to the degree of like, hey, you know, we've, we've got the wood here. We've got the fire. But where's the sacrifice? And what does Abraham say? God himself will provide it. Abraham's walking up the mountain. The sacrifice is walking right in front of him. His son. But just in the nick of time when he is on top of him, getting ready to slay his son at God's word, what does God do? He provides a ram stuck in the thicket. He provides another way. It's a portrait of what will happen with God's son. It's a picture of the gospel in Genesis before the knife will come down on his son in the New Testament. It will come all the way down and God will kill his son. And the thing that had to rattle their minds more than anything else is that what Peter was saying is that God killed his son so that they could have life. So is our sin, does it put us on the hook? Does it make us responsible for Jesus' death? Yes, to some degree it does. But it is not, it's not outside of the will of the Father. The Father. This is the Father's plan ultimately, to kill His Son so that we could have life. Now, everybody in here, we're going to talk about this in a minute, but everybody in here has to have a response to that. Either we're indifferent to it and we say that doesn't really matter, or Jesus is Lord and we bow our knee. Those are, the, those are the, kind of the two responses that we have there. There was this Welsh tale called the Tale of Gellert. And the Tale of Gellert is an interesting tale. <laughs> it's, it, it, it's, it paints a great picture is why I'm telling it to you. The Tale of Gellert goes like this. There was this prince. And this prince had a son. And this This prince was a hunter. And for some reason, the princess was not in the home. So it was the prince and his son. And the prince says, look, I've got this great great dog. I'm going to leave my dog to watch my son. 
as I go out and hunt because the son is sleeping in his crib. Now, you guys think this is crazy, but when you have kids, it's a little bit more understandable. Um, I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm, I'm kidding. I'm too serious. So seriously, the tale is he, he leaves. He leaves the dog there. He comes back. Gellert has been this, this, this dog has just been a great dog. This, he's, he's never done anything malicious or violent. He's been like the best dog ever, like old yeller kind of good dog, like a great, great dog. So he comes back, the, the guy does, he's got, his, he's got his harvest of animals with him, and he comes back and he walks in, and there the dog is excitedly meeting him at the front door. The only problem is, is there's blood and hair all over the floor, all over the dog's face. He's like, man, why is this dog so excited? He's got blood all over him. So in a, in a split instinct, in just a split second, the prince does what he has to do. In his mind, he's thinking, this dog has killed my son. He's killed him. And I, now I know what i got to do to him. So he draws his knife and executes the dog. As he's walking through the house, trying to pick up the pieces and think about what he's going to tell his wife, he goes back into the bedroom and he notices just behind the crib, the baby is sitting there unharmed. There's nothing wrong with him. But there in front of the crib lies a wolf that the dog has taken out to save the baby. And in that moment, the prince declares, I've killed my son's Savior. And it said that that prince never smiled again. I've killed my son's Savior. That had to be exactly what was going on in these guys' mind as they heard about the cost of redemption. Last thing is this, that when the gospel is proclaimed, it promotes a response. Let's read Acts 2.37-41. through 41. So this is the response after the sermon. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. So they couldn't ignore it. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Because we have to do something. What, what, what should we do in response to this? And even as we, we notice in other parts of the Scriptures like Luke 3 and Acts 16, this is a very common response. That the Holy Spirit prompts a response when you hear the Word of God proclaimed. And Peter said to him, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So that same thing you're mocking, that same thing you're thinking that you don't need, the very thing that's come for you, the gift of the Holy Spirit, Christ's presence with you, you'll receive that. And much more, you'll also receive forgiveness for your sins. So those, those secret sins that you have in your life, the things that you don't want anyone else to know about, you can receive forgiveness for those things. What do you got to do to get that? He tells them you got to repent. You got to turn from your ways. And you got to be baptized. So, John the Baptist, years before this, has this baptism as the, as the last prophet before Christ. He has this baptism of repentance. And it, what it was doing is preparing the people's heart for the way, the coming of the Savior. And this, this baptism was, a, was, a, was, a, was a, uh, a, a public statement to all who would see that they needed saving. Next week, we're going to have a baptism in here. 
going to be great, at least one baptism, maybe more. And the statement that we're making in baptism is that we need Christ's blood to wash over us and to make us clean. We need forgiveness from our sins. And those of you that have been baptized in here, it's, it's good to just look back and think about the fact that, that Christ has redeemed us, that we have forgiveness of our sins. Because you know what we are prone to as humans? We are prone to forget that we need the gospel every single day. It's like someday we think we, we can wean ourselves off of Jesus and we think that that's what spiritual maturity should look like. We never wean ourselves off the gospel. So he says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you'll receive the promise. And he says, he goes on to say, for this promise is for you and for your children. Just like the promise of the covenant has always been for you and your children. The promise is for you and your children and all who are far off and everyone the Lord calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness. This wasn't like a 10-minute sermon by Peter. It was a long sermon. He bore witness and continued to exalt them, saying, exhort them, saying, uh, save yourselves. And the way that that actually reads in the Greek is, be saved yourself. It's a passive. Be saved yourself from this crooked generation. So those who received the word were baptized. And there were added that day about three souls. No, 3,000 souls. It's an amazing amazing testament to the work of grace. So what's this mean for us? What does this mean today? The Word of God prompts a response in our hearts. So as you hear about the claims of the Gospel that God killed His Son so that you could live, what does that do inside of your heart? Does it stir affection inside of you? Does it make you want to shout hallelujah? Does it make you, does it make you just kind of turn and twist on the inside thinking about the fact that I've got to do something with that Jesus? Does it cause joy to spring up in your heart? To do all of those things as we see the truth about forgiveness, repentance, and receiving the Spirit. I'll close with this story. Obviously, another story from youth pastor days. I'm telling you, if you want any stories, just have kids and be a youth pastor. You've got endless amounts. When I was a youth pastor, we took our kids to camp one summer. And, uh, you know, typically the way that the last night of camp works, if you've ever been to church camp, is it's this very emotional high experience. We're really trying to draw on people's emotions to get them to, to, to trust in Christ. And so there's kind of, in some ways, maybe they're pure motives, but some kind of manipulative techniques that can happen where we turn out all the lights and we say, hey, with every eye closed and with every knee bowed, I just want you to slip your hand up and tell me, if you want to follow Jesus. And I'm, I'm not mocking that because maybe some of you came to cr follow Christ that way. I'm not mocking that. And, you know, maybe the, the worship leader plays this, this, just, this, this melody that's just amazing and it just kind of stirs our affections and our emotions and maybe God uses that. Well, this youth pastor, was this, this speaker at this conference was a little bit different. He said, hey, at the end of his sermon, he said, I want you to turn up all the lights. So we've got like bright fluorescent lights. We're like, ah, we're like zombies. And then he says, hey, I want you to stop playing music and I want everyone to open your eyes. He said, if you want to follow Jesus, this is like 1,500 people in the room, you want to follow Jesus, I want you to stand up and I want you to walk to the side of the room right now. Because at your school, every eye is not going to be closed and every knee is not going to be bowed. At your job, every eye is not going to be closed and every knee bowed. In your family, when things blow up, every eye not closed, every knee not bowed. Following Jesus is a very public thing. And so what does it look like for you to follow Jesus today? And like two people walked up. 
And he said, you know, that's about what I expected. But, you know, and, and the truth was, if the lights would have been down, the eyes would have been closed, that all of the other things would have been going on, probably would have been 30 or 40 people. But the truth is, the invitation to Jesus is a very public one. It's a very serious one. And so if, if Christ is wooing you to himself today, and this news that you're hearing about him and his word and the life that you can have in him, if it's, if it's springing up into you as good news, and you've never responded to that call, the invitation is for you today to follow Jesus, to repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What a beautiful promise, the gift of God's presence. So what I'm going to do now is we're going we're gonna to pray, we're going to sing, we're going to take communion. And, um, and if God is stirring in your heart today that you want to respond to the call, you want to follow Jesus, you want to make that a public declaration, you want to be baptized into the church, and to be a part of that, I just invite you to respond. There'll be, the, the communion servers will be in the back of the room after communion, and I'll be up here in the front. I would love to talk to you, but it's a very public thing to follow Jesus. And we would love for nothing more than for you to declare to follow Jesus Christ today. We'd love to party with you. Because it's a journey, but it's this beautiful, scandalous journey of God's grace that we're all just trying to figure out together. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you that grace is real, that grace is true, that Jesus came, that Jesus died, that Jesus rose. We're thankful, even though we would never do it ourselves, that God killed His Son. It blows my mind to think about the radical love that the Father must have for His kids to send His Son into the war zone to save the kids, to save all of His, his children. Father, prompt a response in our hearts today as we sit under Your Word, as we think on Your Word. And move in us. Stir our affections and draw us to you, Father. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.